you are listening to This Book I Read, a podcast from Beyond Cataclysm. Welcome to This Book I Read, a podcast from Beyond Cataclysm, where we talk to authors about a book that has stuck with them through the years, for good reasons, or sometimes bad ones. My name is Chris, he, him, also known as CM Lowry. I love to write and read sci-fi, and recently released a book of flash fiction called The Diodicides. Find out more about me at allaboutchris.org or on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram as at cmlowryauthor. However, we are not here to talk about me. I'm delighted to say I have Adrian Tchaikovsky with me on the show. Adrian goes by he, him, is the author of the Shadows of the App series, Children of Time and most recently Shards of Earth, published by Tor in 2021. Hello, Adrian. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much. Um, I think um, I sh- a small correction, most recently uh, Ogres from Rebellion. Uh, okay, in fact, let's change that then. Um, <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm, I, I mean, if you, want to, if you want to do it like that, I think because people are continually boggled about the number of books I have out, I think that might quite amuse people. I think that's good. Well, we'll, we'll absolutely... Like We'll absolutely leave that in then. Um, so basically, Adrian has a problem, which is that he writes too many books. The thing is, your books are big as well. Like they're big, fat, chunky things. Like you must turn out like 5,000 words a day or something like that. Um, not, not so much. Not so much. It's um, I have a very efficient um, writing process so that my first draft and my submission draft are usually quite similar. Um, uh, and I think that's where I, uh, where I kind of make up on the time. Uh, so you, you, you're you basically just, just perfect and make no mistakes when you write, which makes things a lot easier. <laughs> Not exactly. I mean, I, I plan. That's, that's how it, it, it tends to come about. I plan the hell out of things. That sounds like a, a good thing to do. So what are we going to do now? Well, I thought we could talk about this book I read. So what book? brought for us today and why um well possibly fitting the amount of books i actually write i brought three fairly sizable books uh, under the pretense that i do actually own them in one cover uh, as a, a compilation i brought the gorman the gorman gas trilogy by mervyn peak indeed have you got the illustrated copy is that the, the one uh, the i do cover? yes with with his own illustrations being a a fairly multi-talented guy that he was um, brilliant. So for those of us who haven't heard of Gorman Gast, do you want to give us a, I don't know, a brief synopsis, some spoilers probably? Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a weird series of books. So it is kind of a, a gothic fantasy. It was written, uh, they were written in the 40s. In fact, the first book came out before Lord of the Rings, which is kind of a tantalizing idea of how fantasy fiction might have gone if people had seized on peak in the um, 70s instead of Tolkien. It's set, uh, Gormenghast is this enormous labyrinthine castle um, somewhere. It's very cut off and isolated. It has a ruling family and an enormous staff of servants. 
everyone is very strange. The whole thing is utterly weighed down with tradition. Um, the book starts with the birth of Titus Grone, the latest heir to the ruling family. Which is it which all- is straight away brilliant. Titus Grone. Come on. Yes, all the all the names. I mean, it's very he has a very kind of Dickensian feel for names. So you've got the uh, characters like Rotcod and Steerpike and Barquentide and all of these bizarre semi-descriptive names. The book also starts with the character Steerpike, who all is the villain of the series, but absolutely the hero of the first book, at least, or I mean, arguably, arguably the greatest anti-hero in literature by my, by my estimation, um, escaping his role as uh, the lowliest servant in the kitchen and beginning his inexorable and ruthless climb to the highest um, echelon of the castle society. And the first book is very much about Steerpipe because Titus, the arguable hero of the series, is a baby throughout it. And then the second book is really where Titus has, has grown a bit older and he and Steerpike very much go head to head. And the third book is just plain odd, <laughs> frankly. Yeah. And there, I, from my reading, there's also a sort of fourth not fully recognised book as well. They're the fourth book, which I think is based on Peake's notes and was uh, finished by his wife. And that is also, that's also a fascinating, uh, a fascinating read. And... Yeah, it's it's very much precisely how it works as a fourth book of the series, rather than simply as an interesting book on its own, is very marmite, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, there's a there's a fine tradition of, like, just generally in history of of you know series having sequels and things that don't necessarily fit. I mean, the one that always jumps to mind for me is June. Um, like, uh, there's some people say you should just read the first book. Some people say you should read the first three. And then, and then there's about 19 other trilogies after that, with a steadily decreasing numbers of people suggesting that you should read them all. <laughs> so, uh, do you have a, a quote for us that gives us a bit of a flavour of sort of the style of prose or sort of the content of the book? Um, it's very hard to choose a specific quote. It is um, with. Peak's writing, the descriptive prose is actually one of the main joys of reading. No one else quite has a style quite like his. I'm going to pick an early section where the first character we meet, who's actually an enormously minor character, um, who has very little input on the book, is described. Um, Just to give you an idea of how the extremely idiosyncratic way that uh, Peak writes. So... Entering at seven o'clock, winter and summer, year in and year out, Rotcod would disengage himself of his jacket and draw over his head a long ray overall, which descended shapelessly to his ankles. With his feather duster tucked beneath his arm, it was his habit to peer sagaciously over his glasses down the length of the hall. His skull was dark and small, like a corroded musket ball, and his eyes, behind the gleaming of his glasses, were the twin miniatures of his head. All three were constantly on the move, as though to make up for the time they spent asleep, the head wobbling in a mechanical way from side to side when Mr. Rotcod walked, and the eyes, as though taking their cue from the parent sphere to which they were attached, peering here, there, and everywhere at nothing in particular. Having peered quickly over his glasses on entering, and having repeated the performance along the length of the north wing after enveloping himself in his overall, it was the custom of Rotcod to relieve his left armpit of the feather duster and, with that weapon raised, 
to advance towards the first of the carvings on his right-hand side without more ado. Nice. I I actually did read that uh, la- last night uh, when I was uh, frantically reading through things, and I found, um, yeah, because it, it, it's talking about the tradition of these carvings, isn't it, where the villagers basically seem to have a completely pointless, miserable existence for their whole year mm. until this one moment that they bring some some wood carvings out. Um, and even then, I mean, the, the prose is definitely quite, um, it's quite dense. Um, yes. Quite, uh, it, th- it, there was a... It takes, it takes a bit of, it takes, it definitely takes a bit of getting used to. Um, I, what got, drew me to the book in the first place is there was a very good radio adaptation. Um, and I think that broke the ice and kind of got me used to what was going on in the book enough that um, I was able to kind of get into the actual prose easily without sort of bouncing off it, which I might otherwise have done. Which is an interesting one, isn't it? Because I do what I often, you know, a parallel with Tolkien is I often feel like Tolkien, and this is probably sacrilege to say this, but I feel like Tolkien could probably do with a bit more of an edit. Um, like Tolkien, when I when I read The Hobbit, love it. When I read the 19 pages of genealogy uh, about an Elvish king, um, I I it's a rare book where I wonder whether or not a Reader's Digest version might be possibly even more enjoyable sometimes um but but in the same way like um it's interesting because you got into it with a radio play which again was probably a bit abridged yes yes it definitely would have been um i mean if only because obviously it focused it would focus a lot more on the on the dialogue and less on the descriptive writing i mean the thing with tolkien and peak both they are they can both look at odd to modern eyes because we are used to reading in, uh, certainly in fact, in fantasy fiction, we are used to reading in, in a tradition. And it's, it is distinctly a post-Tolkienian tradition. It's not particularly a post-peak tradition because although he has definitely influenced writers, he hasn't influenced them to the same enormous degree that Tolkien has. But neither of, um, neither of those writers were really aware that they were writing in tradition other than Tolkien writing a myth cycle uh, really, yeah. and you know, creating a world and writing the myth cycle for it, um, which was a thing that I think interested him. The world creation interested him probably more than the actual events uh, and characters and so forth he was dealing with, and so they both um, they both seem odd to modern eyes because they are they predate really the. Um, the mores of um, genre fiction writing that we're used to running into. Yeah, I, I think you know, and and I think that's the thing. I think that's what I say when I say they need in it. I don't. I don't think they do need an edit. Um, I think what I think they wouldn't be published in their current form if mm. they went to a, if they went to a publisher. You know, if I wrote a book like these and and a publisher was interested, I think they would say, well, actually, I think we need to you know dial this down a bit. And so it's quite nice seeing stuff that isn't kind of artificially shaped by what we think the market wants or something like that. Um, I, When I was reading last night, I read a, a sentence which it, I quite like it when I find words that I don't know. Um, like, you know, it's always good to expand your vocabulary and then you can steal them and use them in your own writing and seem like you're very clever. Um, and this one, actually, I was reading it on Kindle and Kindle's got a way you can like click a word and it'll look up the word for you. And it still didn't know what the word was. So I had to go and look it up. Um, It's from that same section. Um, As objects of beauty, these works held little interest to him. And yet 
in spite of himself, he'd become attached in a propinquital way to a few of the carvings. And propinquital means a nearness of blood, kinship, nearness in place and time. And I just, yeah, like as in, it's a really cool, a really cool word. <laughs> what is your favourite thing about the Gorman Gast uh, trilogy? Um, it's kind of split. So I think the most defensible favourite thing is the character of Steerpike, who is an appallingly evil character, but at the same time, um, the whole first book basically has him as the role of hero. And I mean, I mean there are different definitions of anti-hero, but one of, one of the big ones for me is if you have a character who is absolutely a villain, but the book treats them as the hero in the sense of um, villains get everything their own way until the end. Um, heroes have to fight all the way through a book. Mm. Steerpike is the villain, but at the same time, he has an enormous struggle. Um, he is coming from the very bottom of the uh, the castle society. He has to overcome these enormous and or exploit this enormous. I'm saying enormous an awful lot in this this incredibly dense layered. Uh, Don't worry, I'll, I'll I'll edit it later yeah. so that you say that you say propinquital instead. It'll be fine. <laughs> But there's this vast tower of tradition that is kind of built to keep him at the bottom. And so whilst he does absolutely ghastly things that we that we absolutely condemn, you kind of sympathize with him because he is also the one living, moving thing in Gormenghast that is pushing against that tide. Mm. And it's you know, and his ascent effectively leads to the collapse and the end of a great many a, the great many a great many things and and a lot of those things are also in themselves evil or rubbish or you know just so so it basically if he was nice he'd just be a hero but because he's also horrible yeah and i mean it's possible that that, that what what peak's saying really is that because there are i mean effectively there are benevolent characters um, there's like there's Doctor Prune Squalor. Prune Squalor, what a name! Yes, another wonderful name. And there's um, even the um, even the current Earl Sepulcrave is quite a benign figure in and of himself. But they achieve nothing. The only time they're actually uh, anyone is spurred to action is because they ha- end up having to oppose um, Steerpike. And Without him, really, you can think, you know, the book would just be the first chapter of the book repeated ad infinitum over the, over years and years and years and nothing changing or happening. Mm. Yeah, I, I I mean, I, I've picked it up and started reading it. I mean, I'd heard of Gormenghast like, before we before we chatted, but um, as soon as I picked it up, I was like, oh, I, I need to read this. It's just like both both because of its place in history, but also it just drew me in. Adrian, you mentioned on your on your website, like a lot of some of your writing started with role play games. Uh, um, yes, yes, that, that that that's right. I mean, that was that was my 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 early kind of creative impulses. That's very much where they went. The 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 writing um, in 
in here really reminds me of a uh, Merkborg. I don't know if you've come across that role play game. Um, I have recently. I was. It's 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 interesting. It's, that's that's definitely been one of the one of the recent um, sort of. Old school revival. I. It is not old school revival because no one back then was writing books like that. I can see why it kind of gets lumped in there because it's very much the idea of you pay fast and loose and the characters die and it's all it's that kind of world. But yeah, no. I the um what what um what I didn't really get about the the um how how, how are you pronouncing it? Because I know it's not Mork Borg. It's actually pronounced quite different, isn't it? Yeah, so I think the official Swedish way is Merkborg, um, but Merk. absolutely lots of people pronounce it Morkborg. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually even had um, I had the head of I had the uh, editor of Tabletop Gaming magazine on my other podcast. Oh, shout out for our for the other Beyond Cataclysm podcast. Uh, what is roleplay? Um, but we had him on there, and and he had the creators on the show. And by the end of the show, he had them mispronouncing their own <laughs> game as Morkborg. So I think you can call it whatever you want. Uh, <laughs> what, I mean, what what I didn't get, and what what I what really struck me when I got hold of the the rulebook at last and had a look is. The whole thing is kind of, um, I mean, weirdly, t- almost tying into Gormenghast. It's this piece of peculiar idiosyncratic art that doesn't particularly care um, about being immediately comprehensible or sort of falling logically to the eye in the way that you would think a game manual would be written. Yeah, It is far more about that kind of its own very, very peculiar style um, yeah, I mean, but that, and it's that style, that theme, actually, like as in just the the horribleness and the grimness of it. Like as in, as soon as I started reading it, I started the the very opening paragraphs of 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 it start talking about these hovels that are kind of set against the 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 kind of the foundation bedrock of the castle, mm. and I just was like, you could set a Merkborg adventure right here, right now, with no more setting required. Um, yeah, I mean, there's one. At, at some point, I'm going to write um, an essay about the attraction of ruin as a setting, mostly, mostly in the in the um, with an eye to computer games, because I think whilst there is obviously a practical idea of it's a lot easier to create a ruin than create a living city or whatever, there's such a preponderance of games where the world is effectively an irre- irretrievable ruin. There is very little. I mean. I was about to say there's little you can do to make it worse, but I mean, having seen playthroughs of Elden Ring, the world is a ruin, but you can absolutely make it worse, and you will, um, over the course of the game. Um, and that the there is some particular attraction beyond, I think, the purely pragmatic um, sort of programming advantages of setting your game in a ruin. If you, you know, looking at um, there's an enormous range as well as um, the the From Software kind of tradition of Dark Souls and so forth, which are probably the most prominent ones. You have things like Hollow Knight and you have Tunic and you have Orion the Blind Forest. And they're all games where no matter what the game might pretend about hope, the world is ruined. The world has been completely destroyed. No matter how cute the little character you're playing is in the game, um, in, a, in a number of them, if you take a step back, this is they are terrible, terrible, tragic games. Yeah, but there's the Fallout series as well. Like, uh, and Well, that, I mean, on that because it's that's the real world it feels a bit different and also fallout is weirdly fallout is considerably more hopeful yeah in than a lot of these because the ruin i think there is there is kind of an exception that all right there's a ruin but there's all this stuff and you can get your kind of your mech suit and your big gun and go out and blow up monsters and it's a bit more kind of american pioneer spirit sort of 
feel to it. Whereas for the character in Dark, for the you know, for whoever you end up playing in in Dark Souls, for the um, for the Hollow Knight, so forth, you all you're really doing is writing the final epilogue of the world that you're in. Mm. I mean, I mean, no matter you know, you 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 you. No matter what you achieve, it's never going to offset the vast amount of things that have been completely lost, and especially in in the Dark Souls games, where very little is ever explicitly said about what was there. It's that the history is also a ruin. I think, and I think that interestingly, one of the reasons that that you know that you're excited about, um, sorry, what's his name, Spike, that uh, the the, uh, the antihero, oh, Steerpike, yeah, yeah. The, the the reason that you're interested in Steerpike is he's in a very kind of quite a ruined setting, you know, as in Gormgast, but he's also going through and whilst maybe he's also destroying as much as he is kind of revolutionizing, he is trying to create something different out of those, well, there's, out of those ashes. There's an interest. One of the things, one of the big themes of the, the second book. So the first book is Titus grown. The second book is Gormgast. Uh, the third one is Titus alone. Um, in the second book, Titus, the heir, is sort of a teenager. He's just, you know, heading heading towards adulthood. And it, like I say, it's, it's him and, and Steerpike kind of going head to head. But the key, Gormengast is where you see the limits of Steerpike's ambition because Steerpike wants to wants to basically control Gormengast. Titus's ambition, he wants to get out. And that is yeah. for all his genuine ingenuity. Um, the one thing that Steerpike never thinks is that he could go elsewhere. In fact, no one except Titus ever thinks this because Gormengast is such an enclosed world. And in fact, in the third book, when he, the third book, I should say, I should, I should basically give the caveat of the third book. Mervyn Peak um, had uh, suffered quite a lot with mental illness. The third book is not technically the probably the finished work that he would have wanted but it was it was what he was able to produce and the publishers published it as as it was it is still a remarkable piece of writing um it you can see it would probably have uh, needed a bit of extra polish if he'd been in a position to do it but in the third book titus does actually leave gormengast and goes into the world and it is not the world you think it's going to be Oh, that sounds very exciting. Yes, I mean, and also, I mean, there is also there is. Um, I mean, talking about just favourite bits, there is the the great sort of writer's nightmare in there, which I assume is probably a, a kind of a, a thing that Peak felt uh, in the same way that the character with Nail and with Nail and I is the actor's nightmare. And I, I mean, I, I I've had actor friends who basically say, look, you know, the thing that haunts them is the idea of ending up like with Nail. In that kind yeah. of just someone who has just utterly wrecked their own career and is obviously never going to amount to anything and is just an a, an, an anchor around the neck of anyone around anyone near them. In Titus Alone, there is a character in a, a place called the Under River, which is basically where all the most hopeless people in this particular society that Titus finds them in end up, who is a writer. And he lives basically in almost a little hut built from unsold copies of the one book he wrote. Um, because no one ever read or bought it, and he kind of his his he sleeps on a bed that is just built up of of, of stacks of these books, and that is, I always feel that that is kind of that the that is the the writer's nightmare, and I think that's that's um, that's very much Pete's 
own own fears coming out there. Uh, that 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 strikes hard as someone who's print, self printed five hundred books recently. But we'll uh... <laughs> <laughs> well exa- exactly. And I, I, I mean, honestly, we, I mean, you know, I mean, I've, I've obviously got a fair amount of momentum as a writer at the moment, but that that fear doesn't go away. No. Um, uh, talking about ruin, ruin, and I think we could. Uh, you know that would be an interesting. I mean, I'm not into. I'm not particularly into computer games, but ruin as a concept in kind of narrative and things like that. I mean, our our whole publisher is called Beyond Cataclysm, which is a quote from um, Day of the Triffids by uh, John Wyndham, which is a classic post-apocalyptic work. And then Beyond Cataclysm is talking about people being unable to accept that. Um, I haven't got the quote in front of me, but basically, people people being unable to accept that cataclysm is a thing that could come to them Mm. whilst i was editing this it became clear that it was quite a cop-out not knowing the actual quote so here it is for you from day of the triffids it must be i thought one of the race's most persistent and comforting hallucinations to trust that it can't happen here that one's own time and place is beyond cataclysm and in your book, um, the Shards one, what is it? Shards of Earth. Like, what's actually horrible in that book is, I mean, it's it's an obvious, like, it's an obvious, I mean, we're getting away from Gormenghast now, but it's an obvious link to, like, looking at current environmental issues and things like that, of just the architects come and just knacker things, like, completely, irretrievably, unstoppably knacker them. Mm. And everyone's just kind of, like, pretending it's not really going to happen. Um, and uh, But again, it's that, it's, it's a very interesting relationship with ruin, um, and and I think uh, you obviously stole the whole idea from Gormenghast. <laughs> what is a problem or challenge that you have with the trilogy? Um, there are, I think there are a few aspects of the books that. There are a few scenes, even which are really very problematic to a modern reader. There's, although it's it's written in a somewhat elliptical style, there's definitely a scene which I think is a rape, which is I I would kind of hope would probably not be approached in that way by Peak if he was writing now. He's writing it in a kind of a romantic Gothic tradition, which probably looked like it would work a bit. Yeah, fine then, but now is is it's a bit of a roadblock running into it now. Um, the other thing, I mean, from the point of view of someone who who myself tries to write sort of against uh, kind of against establishment, against kind of ingrained power, the focus on Steerpike is interesting because the problem is he is definitely evil and he's not he's evil in a way that you can't just say well he's the product of his of his environment um you do get to see the very unpleasant conditions that he's obviously grown up in um where yeah so which are certainly not necessarily going to turn out someone who's all who's sweetness and light in any way but it's also very clear that the the evil is entirely his own and in in a way you know that's the fact that he is so self-motivated is what makes him an admirable character as well as a terrible one but the idea that the person coming up from the bottom is evil is occasionally gives me a bit of a twinge of 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 feeling it's 
despite the fact that most of the book is about are, is about the evils of conservatism as a as a philosophy mm. you still kind of feel well that that's not exactly giving much of an alternative if steer pike is the person you're left with yeah i mean maybe that's just a you could also argue an you know an accurate accurate depressing reflection on just yeah the balance of society and that there isn't necessarily you know a a, a good a good route to the top you know you could you could argue um yeah i mean obviously there there is no i mean as as, as in the in in gormengast there is no route to anywhere um the the whole thing is about the i mean there's it's it's most clearly expressed quite early on you get to see the kitchens and you were introduced to some characters called the gray scrubbers they are six congenitally deaf people whose job is to swab the floors of the kitchens and that is what they do that is what their forefathers did their generation to generation going back in time their entire family has done this one small they've been one this one small cog in this enormous creaking machine that is gormengast and everyone is kind of locked in um and would probably like to do something else but at the same time can't because gormengast has just got them in its grip and they, i mean gormengast is a character in uh, very much in the in in the book Gorm, and it, more, more even than Steerpike, Gormenghast is the antagonist of the series of the, or certainly the first two books. As in Gormenghast, the castle itself. As in Gormenghast, the place. Yes, it's 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 the the it's. I mean, it's a very much a gothic trope, but I don't think there's anything I've ever read where the 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 place is in itself a character in the narrative as much as in these books. One of the, the issues you have when you look at kind of classics is is that things and you know how how we talk and how we approach issues do do evolve over time. Um, in my in in the first episode um, of this book I read, we looked at Day of the Triffids, um, and and yeah, I mean John Wyndham was a bloke writing in the fifties, um, and maybe his approach towards women, well, definitely his approach towards women is is not one that um, that that i that i uh, approve of that well that but the thing is that said what's interesting is is sometimes when you look at this stuff is when you look at the context of when people were writing john Wyndham was actually very um you know the the women in his in his stories generally were subservient housewives who then re- rebelled and were a bit different and, and were fighting against things and so you look at them now and you're like wow they're just crushed in the kitchen but you look then and he'd have been possibly even problematic mm. um do you think there's do you think there's ways that gormengast does that at all um ye- <laughs> it's in, it's it's interesting so um there are several there are there there are several female characters um there's the countess who is any i i, I mean i who is probably the best example of um who is probably the most complicated female character and definitely the one that plays most against type um, because she turns out to be an enormously strong-willed um, powerful character and she um, as the book goes on and as Steerpike starts to kind of um, to loom large she very much becomes the the immovable force that he can't that he can't get around um, and at the same time she is we don't ever see inside her head, really. 
yeah. or, or much. And she's kind of, um, when we meet her initially, she seems to be a character that doesn't really have a great deal going on cerebrally. She's very inert. She has her birds and her cats and her, or, yeah, what she considers as her sort of domain. And she doesn't really have any particular she doesn't really have any relationships with other characters in the book, in, in the book, in the book. And usually she, she kind of keeps entirely to herself, but in response to the changes that Steerpipe wreaks, she kind of comes out of herself and you find out that, yeah, there was this kind of phenomenally um, strong-willed, almost monster just sort of sleeping within her. So she, she, she's a, she's a fantastic character in that sense. Um, you've also got Titus's uh, sister, Fuchsia, who is, um, complicated in that she I think Peek's trying to make her simultaneously um, very much an archetype of this kind of just free quite simple minded spirit whilst at the same time obviously she's got to be a character that works within the setting um, in Titus alone I think the um, depictions of women are, women are generally more problematic because they become a lot more male gazy and and because it's kind of a building's romance of um, of Titus's journey into this new world, they tend to be focused about well, how do they help him? So it is very much the idea that the women are there as um, helping yeah. characters to to move him along. And um, there's there's certainly there's one the, the the largest female role in that is someone who is basically entirely decides oh, I've met this 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 complete random person. I am pretty much going to just dedicate my life to making him happy, and then be very sad when he runs off. Um, yeah. Which is not the most progressive um, way of going about things. And also, you kind of think there was maybe a more interesting character that in that yeah there to be to be to be drawn out that would have made um, that would have added added to the narrative, and possibly that would have happened. Mm. Um, like I say, I mean that is. Um, uh, it, it's it's a, a non it's not the final version of that book, and it's entirely possible that Pete would have rounded that character out more when um, had he had the chance. Why should people listening hunt it out for a read? So, like, as in, what what? How many times have you read it? I've uh, so I read the whole thing at least three times. Um, and there, there are good audiobook versions as well. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why Gormenghast is the amazing richness of the language. No one else writes like, you know, yeah. Peek at his best is, is unparalleled for amazing facility with the language where he writes very complicated sentences. He uses a lot of complex words, but every single part of every sentence is doing is doing work basically is bringing the world to you it's very funny in a, a lot of places it's they're the whole certainly that you get there's a whole uh, business with titus's school in the second book and the uh, the teachers of the school which is yeah which, which is which is hilarious because pete was a he's a very humorous person a lot of his other writing is 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 much more directly slanted towards that kind of that kind of like humor and he you know he he liked a joke, and he liked. Um, he was very, he was a very whimsical um, person. I think it's also worth noting that though the books are there, and they are not the easiest read, although they absolutely repay the effort you put into them. 
if like me you might find another medium would ease you into that story in that world there is um, a bbc radio adaptation like i say there's also a uh, bbc tv series um which is i kind of when i when i heard they were doing one way back i thought well that's not going to work is it and it did yeah. they did a really remarkable job and it's it's an adaptation of the of the, the first two books and works extremely well and has also an absolutely stellar cast that sounds well, I, I, I hate, I, I hesitate to say that sounds good. I should check that out because no, I'm going to read the books <laughs> because I'm all about books, but that does sound good. And and good adaptations are amazing. Like, I mean, Lord of the Rings is a great example, I, I think, of, of one that mm-hmm. really manages to pull off the the vibe um, without, without detracting and spoiling um, from the book, I think. Any other recommendations of similar books to to follow up with if people enjoy this so there's a a book that should be a lot better known uh it's called the etched city by kj bishop um which is very very much in the gormenghast vein it's certainly it's 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 got more sort of action and incident and it's 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 faster paced but it's uh bishop has the same kind of very elegant feel for descriptive language and for creating a world with that language that is bizarre and um, ornate and gothic and has lots of weird little sort of flourishes that that are like that, um, this is something I particularly love in in anyone's writing. They're like little arrow slit windows, yeah. And so you get this offhand mention, and it's like looking out through this tiny crack into this enormous vista that 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 is implied to be out there. I mean, that sounds amazing. I'll, I'll I'll put a link to that in the the show notes. So there we go. That was the Gormenghast trilogy by Mervyn Peake, and we were chatting to Adrian Tchaikovsky. Thank you for coming, Adrian. Oh, thank you for having me on the show. Where can we learn more about you and find your work? So my website is adrianchaikovsky.com. And you went for an easy one to spell there. Uh, well, it's actually the old one was chattersoftheapp.com, which is technically still out there. But I, I having now gone beyond the, the initial series, I felt I needed to update it. And I'm on Twitter at, at aptshadow, which I um, guess I am stuck with. <laughs> and beyond that, the yeah, the books are hopefully to be found wherever books are to be found excellent often often bookshops that's a, a good place to look for them any any film adaptations of any of your stuff not yet there was um they uh the rights to children of time were optioned but that lapsed after a while with the usual things of people you know the the, yeah. the person who had been terribly excited about it suddenly wasn't working at the studio and so forth and so on um since then various bites but nothing so far nothing that actually um come to anything the standard problem of you know we could make a really interesting you know groundbreaking sci-fi thing based on this absolutely incredible book or we could just you know release another marvel film that's just adequate which one will make a hundred trillion pounds i know fantastic well thank you very much for coming along adrian and i hope to hope to chat to you again soon thank you thank you Just listened to This Book I Read, starring Adrian Tchaikovsky. Music, editing and hosting by me, author C.M. Lowry. 
Find out more about us, our books, our podcasts, and the work we do at beyondcataclysm.co.uk. Thanks for listening, and please give us five stars on your podcast platform of choice.